Welcome to Computer History. I'm Chris Garcia. Wars bring with them a great need for a number of things. Computational power is one of them. At least it became one of them. Bookkeeping is another. And logistics planning. All of these ended up being things that the electronic, digital, electromechanical, and various other forms of computer became very, very important and helped move them forward in the way that led to their adoption just mere years after the war ended. And we have to go back to what it was like to actually have to put on the war prior to the invention of computers. A very good example, when Napoleon marched, they needed to have records of everything they took with them. The amount of food, the number of eventually cans or jars they brought, how many people they had, how many extra boots they had. This all had to be done by hand. And when something got used, you needed to cross it off. Now, this is the best case scenario, of course. Often, one of the first things you kind of let go was your bookkeeping. And often that meant you were at a loss for materials. One of the stories goes that right behind the howitzers and tanks would come the jeeps that carried the punch card equipment during World War II. This is probably an exaggeration, but there were absolutely a lot of punch card accounting equipment used during the war, both in the field and on stateside. One of the most important methods for calculating things such as wind speed or directions were slide rules, usually circular, but various types, things that were called dead reckoning computers or airspeed calculators. And these would allow you to figure out various aspects. There are also things a little later, I think after World War II, that let you figure out the safe radius to be away from a bomb, including nuclear weapons, which is a fascinating one. Another thing used all over the place were firing tables. These were usually books that allowed you to figure out how much powder you had to use to send us a shell, how far, against what headwind, and so forth. It's a creation of things like firing tables that Charles Babbage had been trying to mechanize, and that often became very important aspects of early computer usage, even up to and including before the war. Now, one aspect that was important during World War II that hadn't really been as important in previous years was cryptography. The ability to encrypt and then decrypt messages was utterly important. And there's many devices that were used for encryption, the most famous of which, of course, being the Enigma used by the Germans. But there were things like purple. The Americans had a couple of different ones, including one that isn't technically a cipher. It was Navajo code talking. But ciphers were supposed to be very difficult to break. They didn't have to be unbreakable, though. 
you just have to communicate something and know that it will be unbreakable as long as it is needed. So if you send something that will take you four days to break, if you intercept it, you best make sure that the information in there is only needed for three days. One of the things that the Enigma allowed you to do was it had a series of rotors that allowed you to sort of fine-tune it. It also had, for an extra layer of encryption, plug panels on the front. One of my favorite days at the museum was the day that I encrypted all my tweets. It was a fun afternoon. The Germans sending Enigma traffic, which was very, very impressive as far as difficulty to crack. There were hundreds of billions of combinations. The first people to do it were actually Polish mathematicians. And they didn't have fancy devices to do it. They eventually, I believe, captured an enigma that allowed them to figure it out more easily. But one of the things they realized is that the people who are sending the messages are still human. So you have to have a way of figuring out little things, such as there would be a very similar 10 characters at the beginning or end of a message. They knew that these were good German officers. They'd be signing on or signing off with Heil Hitler. Moreover, occasionally, cryptographers or messages, message senders would be dumb and send things like, what were today's keys again so that they would then send the keys so that they would know oh okay i need to be have my enigma set like this now the british wanted something a little more exact and replicable replicatable is that word not replicable <laughs> the idea being that if you, the faster you could crack a message the more you could do to prevent the harm that that message was meant to convey. So, for example, if you had a message broken within, let's say, an hour of it being sent, and it was talking about something that is five to six hours away, you could send a message and have that, if not prevented, at least ameliorated to some level. And there's that great scene in The Imitation Game, a fine film, where they've cracked a message and Turing and friends want to tell the people to, you know, turn the ships around or whatever. And they realize they can't because that would give away that they had cracked the message. But there were often things where they would lead to do variations that would make it less likely. The first version of a mechanical device designed to break the Enigma codes in particular was the bomb, which was based off of the Polish version called the Bomba, which they had built with their original knowledge of how to break it longhand, or at least medium hand. <laughs> the Bomba was a large mechanical device with a number of rotors that allowed you to test the positions so that coherent messages could be found. And this was, of course designed primarily off of the theories that Turing implemented in the hardware. It's 
an impressive design, and a reconstruction exists today at Bletchley Park. It was fast. But the Enigma wasn't the only code system being used. In particular, there was the Lorentz cipher and also the Geheimschreiber, which is secret writer, literally, that was more difficult to crack. And a team, who I believe Tommy Flowers led at Bletchley, developed an electronic device called Colossus. Colossus was another large early electronic device. It had a very small memory. And you would input the data via paper tape. And it would process it. And again, doing combinatrix and so forth, it would eventually, hopefully, give you the message or at least aspects of a message so that you could go back and figure out the rest of it. This was even faster than the bomb, and it was, while slightly less reliable because electronics at the time had their issues, it did allow for even faster breaking of the code. But more importantly, it was massively important to the British computing world because a number of the people who had worked on Colossus in various forms ended up going into the computing world, Tommy Flowers being one of them. And this idea that you could use electronics for number crunching, well, it always existed. The use in cryptography was not new, but certainly rare. Of course, Turing and Tommy Flowers and a number of other people who had worked on the project would end up going forward in being a part of the world of computing. And a lot of times, since this was exceptionally secret, up until, I believe, 1970s, 1970s, somewhere around there, I think it was revealed in 1968, but then became more public in the 1970s, that they would ask, well, where did you learn that trick? And Tommy Flowers thinks, well, I picked it up along the way. What's interesting about code breaking is everyone was doing it. Everyone was trying to figure out a faster way to break the code of the other folk. The purple was eventually broken by U.S. cryptographers, crypto analysts, I believe, technically. And a number of the other codes were. I don't know if any of the uh, Japanese cryptographers ever figured out Navajo to the degree that they could actually intercept messages, but... Maybe. At the same time, some of the machines that we had talked about last time were still in operation and doing work that was intended for use in the war. In particular, the Harvard Mark I, which eventually became the Harvard Mark II, Mark III, Mark IV, uh, including the Harvard Mark III, which actually used a number of electronic components, including vacuum tubes and crystal diodes. The Mark IV was actually after the war, but it used... A magnetic core memory, for example, which we'll talk about a little later on. But once the War Department figured out that, hey, electronics are going to make computers or computer-like devices possible to be put into 
a whole new series of concepts. So what can we do with it? The Navy came up with Project Whirlwind. And Whirlwind was a very, very, very smart project. The idea was to make a flight simulator so that you would have to have something, a computer that was fast enough, so that it could simulate the aspects that you would see either on the panel or somehow they were going to do a video maybe to figure out how you could train pilots without having to actually potentially sacrifice a plane or even just plane time. Well, this is a great idea, but it didn't come off nearly in time for the war. It came out in the early 50s. But it would become one of the most important computers of the 1950s because it gave us core memory. The differential analyzers that I spoke about last week were also put to use with things like the Manhattan Project, as well as the Harvard Mark I, and several other independent devices that have never fully been examined. One of the things that the Manhattan Project was very interested in was how can we make process-specific items? And Oppenheimer was not a huge believer in computers, but among those who were on the project were John von Neumann, Nick Metropolis, figures who would become massively important to the history of computing. Edward Teller, who less to do with computing itself, but more to do with the systems that would lead us to computing. Running Lawrence Livermore Labs being one of them. More on that well down the line. But computational devices to figure out firing tables were also highly important. And at the Moore School at the University of Pennsylvania, two profs, Eckert, J. Presper Eckert, and John Mockley put together a proposal to build a computer called ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical, Numerical Integrator and Computer. This was groundbreaking, not necessarily for the electronics or for even for the use in the war because it wasn't fully finished until after the war ended. But because they did a series of lectures, and they also allowed people to use the computer, people like D.H. Lamer, who I had mentioned earlier, first time ever used a computer, Harry Husky, people who would go on to change the way computing happened, a number of the first generation. And this becomes important because it was hands-on with a computer. Now, it wasn't a digital computer. It was electronic, so that's a plus. It was huge. Its memory was not the best. It was still delay line based. But it was coming up at a very interesting time. It was built for the war purposes. But since it wasn't completed for the war, it had to be re revised. And things like the 24-hour weather forecast was done using it, one of the first... They were always trying to find new areas. The Army Mapping Service used one of the earliest. And I remember speaking with Karen Anderson, wonderful science fiction author, wife of Paul Anderson, who passed away about 20 years ago. Very sad. Loved that man. And she had worked with it at 
the mapping service. And she said one of the keys was that they were attempting to compute distances. So you would figure out, you would have this one map, not necessarily scanned, but the points on it would be noted. And you might have another point on that map, and you need to figure out the distance. You wouldn't think that was a difficult thing, but if you think of it as the traveling salesman problem, you have seven points, and you need to find out the fastest distance between them. Well, computers are much better at that than humans, or at least faster at it. Another famous use for it was the census, of course. And creating the concordance of the Bible, and they're been dozens of concordances of the Bible, but this was the first one that was stored on a computer and used to produce. And what is, in essence, a very good index, it becomes, it adds possibilities once you can use a computer and you can do it more electromechan or like more mechanically, even if it's electronic. <laughs> the ideas of computing were fully taken on during World War II. And the government recognized that one of the reasons why they had done so well in World War II, besides the fact that we were motivated, was that we had put together a group of scientists of various disciplines to solve the major problem, the Manhattan Project, but also the Moore School was the gathering of scientists to solve a different problem. How do we create a computer that has uses that are defense, but then also shifting and realizing, oh, we can use this in other ways as well. And that's where everything sort of comes together. The recognition that the aspects of computing that we see as important depend on what our needs are at the time. The military, who was doing almost all the funding here, had a set of needs. But once they didn't have those needs anymore, they still had the devices. They still had the funding allotted. <laughs> so they start to look for new methods. Now, there's also a whole bunch of other devices that were used for doing things like gun control. So you had things like the Norden Bombsight, which are analog computers that were incredibly accurate. There's a joke that one of the Bombardiers was sort of famous for saying that uh, you could, using the Norden bombsight, you could hit a pickle barrel at 100 meters. Or maybe it was a mile. I don't know. And when they were asked about it later in the year, they said, sure, which pickle do you want to hit? It was an incredibly accurate system. And one of the reasons why it could be so accurate was that the bombardier, while they the very last moments, would take over control of the flight itself so that you would have the plane and the bomb targeting system going together. There was also the relay interpolator, which was designed by George Stibitz, who we talked about last week, 
which was eventually merged into various firing systems, in particular, I believe, uh, submarines and also uh, howitzer-based type weapons on the ground. The concept, at least. I believe there may have only been one relay interpolator. Not 100% sure. I was looking into it, and I couldn't find a lot on it. But it used 400 relays, which would have been pretty sizable. But these devices were never seen as the endpoint. And that's important. When these machines were funded, we knew we would have use for this technology for the baseline uses after the war. This is one of the things that a lot of the uh, sort of social scientists who deal in the computing world realize, is that when governments are funding things that are specifically for war, they almost always discover new purposes and repurpose that technology elsewhere. There's the argument that the Cold War's rush for nuclear weapons actually led to the nuclear energy sector. There's an argument to be made, but it's always the secondary presentations, the things that pop up after we're done with the main purpose that end up changing the world. World War II did one other thing that's really important that often gets overlooked. It trained a generation of GIs to be electronic technicians. People who worked on radar systems, for example, or who maintained not even the computers, but just anything electronic. There were so many of them at that point. Radios. Radar displays, like I said. Anything like that required maintenance, which required training people to become electronics experts to a degree. That also very much helped with, and and along with the GI Bill, to get more and more people into the engineering space. And that, more than anything else, provided the first aspect of the soup that would be needed to get the first generation of electronic digital computers moving. There's so much to say about World War II and computing, and there are books about it, even. IBM made a lot of money off of World War II, and not only off of providing punch card equipment and computational devices, but also they turned over part of their factories to actually creating guns, among other things. And coming out of the war, IBM really took took it by the throat, and moved in towards computing in a big way. Very smart way, also. Our next episode, we're going to look at three devices. Very particular devices. And they all sort of bring us closer to the computers and the first generation We're going to talk about the ABC, the Atanasov or Atanasov Berry computer. We're going to talk about EDVAC. And we're going to talk about the IAS machine. The episode after that, we're going to go back a little bit 
and talk about England. The role of Manchester in the history of computing and how the early computers that were coming out of Cambridge and Manchester would end up helping to define what computers would become. And we'll be talking about people ranging from Freddie Williams and Tom Kilburn, Morris Wilkes. Of course, we'll talk Turing. And we'll talk about the American-British back and forths that we saw from people like Harry Husky, which allowed technologies to expand on both sides of the Atlantic. So the next two are going to be a pretty good set. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Stay tuned.